0: Hello, this is Ruslan Malinowski. Hello,
1: this is Roman Yeremchuk.
0: Hello, I'm Sergei Rebro.
1: And you're listening to Ukraine Post (laughs)
2: Football. The European autumn has come to a close across Europe as the nights grow darker. The Ukrainian leagues continue until mid-December amidst the backdrop of war and connected power outages. In today's episode, we'll be looking back at the final UEFA game week, giving particular focus to Shakhtar, and looking forward to the upcoming World Cup alongside plenty of other talking points, so strap in for the ride. I'm Adam with Andrew and Ray alongside me, and welcome back to another episode of Ukraine Plus Football. Joining us on this week's show is a very special guest. Making their Ukraine Plus Football podcast debut is Adam Crafton from The Athletic.
3: Hello, thank you for having me.
2: It's great to have you here, Adam. Adam, alongside his athletic colleague, Joey Derso, has been working on a special podcast project over the course of this season's Champions League group stage related to Ukrainian football. The brand new series "Away from Home" follows Shakhtar Donetsk as they navigated through this season's Champions League during Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Adam, just for our listeners, would you care to explain a little bit about the podcast series?
3: Yeah, for sure. So it's a it's a six-part uh, narrative podcast documentary series. Um, we've been given pretty full access uh, behind the scenes at Shakhtar Donetsk during their Champions League group stage matches so um, interviews with board members uh coaching staff players uh supporters uh Ukrainian journalists that, that were that were following the team um and and the idea was we wanted uh back in August um to 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 really give an idea of you know the challenge of how on earth do you run a football club when your country is being invaded and how on earth are you meant to compete in the Champions League when you've lost, in Shakhtar's case, you lost your head coach in the summer, you lost about 14 uh, players, mostly foreign players, um, in the summer as well. Um, and also at the same time, you have this extraordinary legal battle that they're in with FIFA of around 50 million uh, euros, all at the same time. We wanted to try and piece all of that together. Um, and and hopefully what we've produced is... a. Um, a kind of emotional uh, documentary that's accessible I think not only to football fans but also you know, anyone who's been following this war anyone who's interested in global affairs anyone who is moved by an underdog story which is really what this is from a sporting point of view Hello, I'm Adam Crafton and I'm the host of the Athletics' new documentary series Away From Home I've been following Ukrainian football team Shakhtar Donetsk They're in the Champions League but they're having to play their home games in Poland following Russia's invasion of Ukraine. bomb. In this series, we're going to take you inside Shakhtar. Travelling with them across Europe as they set out on their Champions League Odyssey.
2: It's not only about football now, it's about the show that we are fighting.
3: I'll be speaking to those in Ukraine itself, hearing stories about how the war has affected them. My wife's father, he died. you, yeah. Subscribe now to Away From Home to follow the whole story.
1: All right, Adam. And how did the idea for the pod come, come up in general? Like, uh, how, how did that happen?
3: So I'll be totally honest. Um, I think since we launched The Athletic in the UK in 2019, we have wanted to follow a team during the Champions League group stage, right? And we send out loads of loads of emails to lots of different clubs when that happens and this year Shakhtar came back to us and we're like we'd love to do it because I think I think what Shakhtar have obviously recognized is that they are in a, a as a football team they're in a quite a unique position in terms of making the story of Ukraine accessible to different audiences right and I think there is an awareness and consciousness in Ukraine that Like with so many wars, this is what we see, isn't it, over the years? When something first starts, there is this really high level of engagement across the world. How can this be happening in a European capital? How can this be happening? What are Russia doing? And then over time, it becomes normal, you know, to wake up every day and to see on the news that bombs have dropped, that people have died, that children have died. And you know, we saw we've seen this in so many wars over the years, whether it's Iraq or Afghanistan or Syria, over time people's attention and there's a level of almost fatigue um that sets in and I think what I've recognized is if you can make these stories these narratives relatable you know if you can show the sports fan the football fan god this is what it's taking to compete in the Champions League that you just engage different audiences in different ways now obviously you can talk forever about the rights and wrongs of people's attention spans um, in in that sense and I'm definitely not underplaying what what's happened there in Ukraine um but but I think Shakhtar recognized the potential of sport to access different audiences so when we went to them and said this is something we'd love to do they bought into it straight
0: away I've actually had the uh, the opportunity to have a preview listen of the pod by the time everyone's listening to this podcast our podcast um Adam's one will already have been out uh and I can say that the first episode is very emotional but Adam also uh, tells me that it's going to get even more so we'll we'll see as obviously that comes around and we're going to be listening to it and we're looking forward to listening to it what what's the thing that you've taken most away from this whole experience Adam because obviously I've met you a few times at some of the games I've met Joey as well and you know it's interesting that obviously you're whilst you're working on the job you've met a lot of interesting people you've spoken to some of our Good friends as well, like you do know who was on last week's pod, and lots of other you know refugees and all that kind of stuff. What sort of impact has it had on yourself?
3: It's incredibly powerful. I mean, first of all, and yeah, as actually, I was just listening to the the second episode, which you've not which you've not yet heard, Andrew. Is we sent Joey to Croatia, where Shakhtar's academy has 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 moved during the war, and that's because the director of football Dario Serna. Obviously, has fantastic contacts in Croatia, and he spent time with these kids that, who are being kept safe. And in theory, you're in Split. Most of us would love to have a week in Split. It's a brilliant place. There's beaches and there's nightlife, and it's all quite fun. And it's it's beautiful climate, landscape. Um, but I would say it's like one of the, some of the most emotional interviews I've ever heard. Um, you know, the simplicity of listening to children say that they've left their homes that they miss their parents that they want to go back to their country um children who really you know a year or so ago would have just been thinking i want to be a footballer in my country and that was basically their very simple lives and now all of a sudden it's i don't know where you know i don't know what's happening with my dad i don't know what's going to happen to me in the future I i think there's also you know a fascinating aspect Apart, apart from the obviously the war stories, the refugee stories, um, what happens next for Ukraine stories, I've been super impressed by the, the level of these young Shakhtar players, right? Like when you first see that team sheet for Shakhtar before the first Champions League match um, of their campaign, where you've got something like eight players who have come through the Shakhtar youth system in some way, you've got, I think, seven aged 23 or below, um, 10 Ukrainians in that starting lineup, you're looking at that team sheet and you're thinking they've not got a chance against Leipzig, right? And then they go and win 4-1. And okay, that, that result's a bit of a, a freak result, it's an outlier. But the way that they played, actually, in probably five of the games, if you take away the final game, the confidence they had to play out from the back, um, the level that you see from you know 21-year-old goalkeeper like Anatoly Trubin, but players like Matt Matvienko. Bondar, uh, Bondarenko in midfield, Sudakov. I think is fantastic in midfield as well. Mudrik, obviously. I think probably they they just lacked a bit of quality in those other forward positions as they went along. But from a organisational, defensive, tactical point of view, I was super impressed by the way they played and the courage they showed. Particularly when you to bear in mind all of the travelling that they were doing at the same time. It was I, I found that as impressive as anything because I think. I think even Shakhtar will admit that the one concern they had before we sort of set up set about this was, you know, what if we just lose five 0 in every game? You know, will everyone that you want to interview still want to be interviewed by match day three, match day four, match day five? And obviously, the way it turned out with them almost beating Real Madrid, with them really giving it a good go against Celtic, home and away, it made it fantastic.
2: It's been a has been an incredible campaign, and we'll we'll talk about last week's performance just in a little bit, but. Before we head into the, the game itself, for me, obviously, I've, I've been in Ukraine for 12 years before, you know, until the war began. But for you, I would imagine it was a lot fresher. What perspective now have you got on Ukraine and Ukrainians that you didn't have before embarking on this project?
3: I don't think I necessarily appreciated just how strong the, the national identity of Ukraine itself was um i think that's something that's kind of i think that's kind of struck everyone right from afar joint, joint since the since the full scale invasion is that unbelievable sense of resilience and defiance um and unity um you know i think if you go back to the way that 2014 was framed it was almost framed in the end as though it was rather than an annexation and an invasion which is what it was right the the way i think it was sometimes became framed over time was like oh you've got you know some ukrainians they really want to be part of russia and russia are just trying to help them out and (laughs) and things like that and i think what's happened since february march has just given absolute clarity to what the reality of that situation is that you have a a belligerent force that you have an aggressor and you have a victim or survivor right and I think it's given real clarity. And that's not to say that, you know, there's no Ukrainians who are sympathetic to Russia because that also wouldn't be true, right? But I think what we've seen is the vast, vast majority of a country recognising its individual sovereign identity, territorial identity as Ukrainian and being absolutely prepared to stand up for that and also creating what you see in, for example, I think it's encapsulated by this young Shaksha side is this new generation of Ukrainians, who are so proud to be ukrainian and who want to fight for that right to be ukrainian i'll give you an example of um uh, i don't think he's a brilliant player unfortunately but Ivan petriak uh Shakhtar midfielder um who i spoke to before the first game week and i was talking to him about about his father-in-law who died um during the war and he said you know they, they killed my father-in-law would not been able to bury him would not be able to have a funeral and he then talks about um, the, the necessity to fight now, as in the to win this battle now, because of his fear that in 10 years' time, in 15 years' time, it'll be his children who are having to do the same fight all over again. If you don't take out the Russians now from Ukraine, that that fight will just repeat itself and repeat itself. And, you know, when you're hearing that from someone in their mid-20s, about their own kids. That's incredibly moving when they're talking about a generation ahead of them, a generation below them. Um, So that's what really struck me, the kind of resilience of the older generations, but also of what's coming next, the idea that this Ukrainian identity isn't going anywhere. Has there been any impact of people you know, anyone you know that has been injured or?
1: This is a very difficult question my my wife's father he died oh. they killed him. Yeah.
3: I'm so sorry. Yes.
1: He was close to Donetsk, close to Shakhtar House and they killed him there.
3: And you just receive a phone call to tell you this is what happened.
1: Uh, yeah, I know, I know I spoke with the with the soldiers. Like I know what's happened there. I know everything and my family know everything. My wife also because he was he was too close with me he was too close he was my like second father and for me this it, it was also very difficult
2: i mean i've got to say i think you've encapsulated it perfectly there that's sort of the, the exact sentiments that i share and i know many other non-ukrainians that have spent time in ukraine uh both before february of this year and afterwards would, would certainly share those sentiments we're going to talk about football now though and uh, Andrew, you were in uh Warsaw as well for the match day obviously four 0 disappointing, but was it the end of the world?
0: Ah oh, I wouldn't say so. I think that everyone was slightly subdued by the end of the game. I think there was slight hope prior to kickoff that maybe Schachter could do it and make their way to you know the the knockout stages. but I think in the end, what happened was there was a slight back of the mind thinking from the Schachter players and maybe even the management and everyone there that the fact that they'd already qualified for the Europa League, I think it was just, it just meant that there was a slight less bite and a bit more, less hunger for the victory. And it was unraveled at the end of the day. Leipzig were the better team. It was evident that they had a lot more quality. And I think in general, all the things that everyone expected Schecter to be affected by in the opening match day or for the whole campaign per se, you know, uh, the delays uh, in fatigue, uh, problems with injuries and just having general problems in the context of the war and travel and everything else that comes with it. That all just came to a head in this final game when it obviously meant a lot less because it was They didn't have to fight for their lives, per se, to stay in Europe. Uh, they already had the Europa League. And I think with that comfort blanket, uh, they got it. Sadly, um, it, it was one of those performances that, you know, we've seen a lot of from Ukrainian clubs that, or Ukrainian teams this year, sadly. I think one of the ones more mirror images, I would call it, uh, was the Wales game where I think Ukraine played a lot better than Shakhtar did in comparison, but it just was like never meant to be. We move on though. And luckily Shakhtar are in the Europa League playoff round. And they have drawn none other than Dinamo's, one of, well, one of Dinamo's least favourite teams of late. Stad René. Yep, Shakhtar are going to France to face them in February. Going to be interesting to see. I think from the available draws that Cech could have got, that's one of the more favourable for their progression, in my opinion. So we'll see what happens in regards to that when it comes to it, but probably not really any point in going too deep into it because lots of transfers could happen by then and plenty of other problems that uh, could arise with regards to both sides. So we will see.
2: Ah, Gents, we've been talking about transfers a little bit already with uh, Modric. Uh, There's been rumours, obviously, around Arsenal. How much traction do we think there are in those stories so far? I mean, can I come to you first, Adam, on that one? And then I'll open it out to the rest of you.
3: Yeah, look, I, I think, you know, I mean, Shakhtar have gone on the record Repeatedly to say, you know that there is, you know, there's interest from a lot of big clubs, uh, Man City and Arsenal. I think were the latest that Shakhtar name checked, and, and it's also interesting. I mean, I was speaking to Dario Cerner, the director of football at Shakhtar's hotel before the final game against Leipzig, and and he was saying, you know, anyone that wants to buy Mudric is going to have to respect us and respect the market. And what they argue is the market. When you look at the examples they use, players like Jack Grealish, you know, going for over 100 million euros, Jadon Sancho, Anthony. And if you look at what they kind of achieved in their careers, oh, yeah, it's you can see it from Shakhtar's point of view, when they're talking about Mudrick, they're saying, well, he, he's in that ballpark. Now, I think there is a, a kind of a real politic reality, if that makes sense, to, to to what will happen with Mudrick, which is you've got a player who wants to leave I think it's fair to say before at least by the summer and Shakhtar aren't in a particularly strong position given the situation in the Ukrainian league and we don't know what's going to happen with the country over the next the next months and year so I I think there's a position where the player wants to go and the club wants to sell him therefore that's a different position to when for example you know man united are trying to buy anthony from ajax very late in the window where the clubs under a huge amount of pressure to get a deal done that adds 20 30 million onto the asking price i think we, i think the reality with Mudrik is probably he would probably go for in the end for sort of 60 70 i would think which i still think is a fantastic deal for Shakhtar. i imagine correct me if i'm wrong that must be a record for a ukrainian player as as well i think the position he plays in, that kind of left forward position, is of huge value across across Europe. I can't quite decide what the right level is for him, because I think he's massively benefited from being in a team that counterattacks, where he's the star, where he's able to have that ego. I think where you've got someone, you know, if he's going to a a team like Man City Arsenal, where teams are going to sit back against you a little bit more, has he got that quality to break a team down? I think he can probably learn it. But I think it would take some time to, to 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 learn that skill. And the other thing is in January, who's going to spend 60, 70 million? I'm not sure there's that many clubs lining up in January. I think in the summer, sure. So I think what you'll probably see is Mudrick stay at the club until the summer, unless a kind of maybe a Newcastle come in in January with that, with that money. And everyone just yeah. sort of thinks, okay, let's take it. But I don't know. What, what do you guys
1: think? Well, he is about to, and uh, it's high time for him to uh, move on. And um, he is um, in danger of becoming Tihankov if he stays, let me put it that way. And uh, the management in Shakhtar is obviously more capable of uh, negotiations and club management in general. So uh, they are talking that uh, backstage that they will charge. Uh, At least 70 million for him. Um, If he performs well in the knockout stages, uh, they might as well do that. But if he keeps on going, like the last match with Leipzig, any UPL hat trick or a poker or a man of the match yearly uh, annual award of the season would not fix the price and would not make it to go up by not not even by a million. So it's all about uh, making decisions and troubleshooting because troubles arise after you have such a great player and you're out of Champions League and you're not you might not get there um, directly in the nearest future unless you win the championship. So it's all starting to piling up now as the season. Uh, I'm pretty sure it's going to be a funny season because World Cup, In the middle, just going to make it more exciting. And I believe some changes are going to happen, even though Ukraine is not playing there. But I feel that it's going to impact. Obviously, the Zerbi move into the EPL has brought a
2: little bit of Ukraine with him. There's been rumours of Matt Vienko, am I right, Andrew, Heading, heading that way? Any other names in the pipeline as well? Could he be coming back for?
0: I don't think so just yet. Anyway, uh, I think Adam, one of Adam's colleagues, was the David Ornstein was the one that actually broke the news. Uh, Twenty million. Whether Shakhtar would actually let him go for that, I think, is the bigger question. Personally, I think it would be a perfect move for him. It would really work out. Uh, he, he would. I think he would play quite well in that Brighton team, who love a bit of um, to play attractive attacking football. And with Matt Vienko, who's actually great at starting moves from the back and got a great passing and relatively capable defender, although he's maybe not the most physical compared to, say, Lewis Dunk, for example, I would think that he'd be good.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, mean, I don't think he's at the stage yet where, you know, Brighton are negotiating with Shakhtar or anything like that. Um, I think it's clearly a player that Zerbi likes and that Zerbi's worked with before I, I think there's other players I don't know if it's deserve if it'll be Brighton but you know I mean I think Trubin for sure over the next couple of years will end up uh, at a really high level I think you know it's pretty rare to see a goalkeeper at age 21 performing as well as he has in the Champions League I know he's not being perfect I know he's made mistakes but I think the way that he's played with confidence you know passing out from the back the way that he commands his area, the reflexes he's shown. I think he's that kind of profile of uh, Thibaut Courtois or Ilan Melier leads that that kind of goalkeeper. And I think, I know there's clubs that are already keeping very close tabs on him. I'm fascinated to see how Sudakov and uh, Bondarenko develop as well. I think they've both, they've, you know, like, like Trubin, they've had moments of inconsistency during the Champions League group stage. But I think at their best, in this group stage, they've been really, really good and competed really well. I mean, they've been helped by having Stepanenko just behind them, who was being sensational really in so, in, in some of the games, just the kind of discipline that he gives them. Um, but I think Sudakov in particular, I really, I really like. And Bondarenko, he he reminds me a bit of uh, Dendonka, who was at Wolves, um, that kind of guy. Um at times he can be a bit, he can look a bit slow. I think, but I think the yeah, I think there's quite a few of them that that you look at. Even you know, Sikan, I know he obviously had that terrible miss, but fascinating to see how he develops. He's so young. Um, also, Andrew, I know you're not a massive fan of Bondar, but I've actually I've I've watched him and I I think he's been pretty good in the circumstances in terms of what he's been asked to do. And I'm going through all of them because I think as a team that performed really, really well. The one I probably can't give a move to based on the performances is La Sina <laughs> Yeah,
0: I mean, I just want to add there, I think the big question is all going to be, if anyone moves in January, is uh, is largely to do with the fact that whether Schecter are ready or have a replacement per se. I know oh. that Mudrick is obviously the sort of the golden boy that probably is irreplaceable in the squad in reality, as in when he goes, uh, that will leave a massive hole in the side. But elsewhere, I think that there are positions, even from like the under-19s, I've seen a few of their games, that there is a slow production of talent that will be slotted in as that continues. For example, just this weekend, uh, Shakhtar played against Inhulet. Inhulet and... They, you know, gave the sort of starts to Chris Giv, to Ocharetko, uh, all these youngsters that have been in the, you know, on the bench or per se, and that can hopefully adapt and help bring a bit more to this Specter team. Yeah, once what, what, some of these what, what bigger one, size leave.
3: Sorry, Andrew. One thing that what was really interesting just last week, um, it's covered in sort of one of the later episodes is I actually said to the ceo sergey paulkin i said this experience where you've had so many young ukrainians shining for Shakhtar, that's obviously very counter to what the club's philosophy and strategy has been over the last well decade 15 years because of so many brazilians being recruited and things like that and i said to him in the future does this actually change the way you operate as a club because you've seen what's possible And and he said that he's never had so many emails from Shakhtar fans giving sort of positive feedback about the team and the players and the connection that they have, that they feel with the club at the moment. And something Dario Serna said was any Brazilian who wants to play for Shakhtar in the the future, that level is going to have to be higher for them to sign them. You know, they have to be 50% better than the Ukrainian who sat in front of me in our academy and things like that. I mean... The difficulty is, you know, Shakhtar's academy has a pretty good record, but like, if you're Shakhtar now, you sell Mudrik for 70 million, where do you invest that money? Because in terms of recruiting foreign players, that's really difficult in the current climate. Are foreign players going to choose to come to Ukraine? We don't know. And also, if you're building an academy infrastructure, where do you build that infrastructure? Where are you developing talent? Because all your facilities your fantastic facilities in Donetsk, you can't use. You know, do you do you build an academy in Kiev, in Lviv? Is that right for a club that's called Shakhtar Donetsk? Do you, do you know what I mean? Like, so I, I think they've got some really difficult decisions that I don't really think there's any right or wrong answers to over the next few years.
0: I mean, I first and foremost think that probably that money, uh, the vast bulk of it will probably help to survive as a club yeah. probably over the next few years at least yeah. Yeah. especially with you know the fact that when they're renting out places like leggy Warsaw's training facilities they're not making the profits that they used to this lawsuit that we mentioned at the very yeah. start of the show continuing it you know and we know how long those take it could go on for years yeah, I think that that's probably going to be the first and foremost. And then their their new sort of shift and focus is looking at these Ukrainian talents that maybe aren't playing too well for their clubs in Europe, picking those up such as Shred, such yeah. as Petyak, Zubkov, who's been brilliant until his injury, yeah. and bringing them back. For me, I think what will be quite interesting to see uh, is with the current sort of decline of Dynamo Kiev, whether Schecter could even try and nab some people from there maybe as free agents of course because i know that uh dynamo are going to be quite difficult in any the negotiations they'll probably be treating uh, Schecter like a premier league side per se but i think that that might we might get to that point um maybe not this year but maybe in a year and a half or you know two years time
2: just, I want to get this right. Did you just say that Shakhtar are going to go shopping at Dinamo Kiev, Andrew? Did you just put that out into the public?
0: Well, if Zahankov uh, you know, doesn't get any suitors soon enough, and if no one in Europe wants him when he is a free agent, then he might well be snapped up by them. And I can tell you for certain that Shakhtar will sell him on uh, for. <laughs> or make him a lot more of an appetising package for a team in Europe than Dynamo Kiev could?
2: Oh, how the tables have turned. One thing that I'm I'm curious about as well, though, now is, is something that, Ray, you'll be aware of, as a, a good friend of ours at Shakhtar, has moved from the academy to the first team, with a lot of the international coaching staff also leaving, is that what will be the impact for the academy there as a lot of their staff and the people that put in place this structure are now involved with the first team. That's something else that the club are going to have to look to to take because it's not only uh, recruiting international world-class talented players but it's also the recruitment of world-class talented coaches and I think the club pulled off a mass stroke there in the summer with their 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 recruitment of the Zerbi's replacement in Yovicevich. Well moving on, moving on, moving on. Uh, before we dive into the other teams in Europe, let's have a little talk about the forthcoming World Cup in, in particular. Now Gianni Infantino came out with a rather outrageous statement last week relating to ideological and political leanings and asking them not to be brought into football. I mean, Adam, what was your reaction to this statement?
3: Do uh, You have swearing on your pod. We do. You do? <laughs> now, it's like, I mean, it's not a surprise, is it, right? It's exactly what you expected to hear from Gianni Infantino. The thing I find extraordinary about it is, you know, I, I have kind of like the misfortune to have to follow what Infantino says as part of my job for a living. And he was at uh, Davos in Switzerland because, of course, he was in Davos in Switzerland in May at the World Economic Forum, kind of like pontificating about how football can fix the world and saying, you know, even put up a a website piece on on FIFA's website with the, the headline was Infantino Football Can Change the World. And he was citing Nelson Mandela and he was saying, you know, how sport has all this potential to influence things. And then uh, two weeks before the World Cup, we've all of a sudden discovered that sport has extraordinary limitations, that sport can't really achieve anything. And really, all we should be talking about is the football. And it was all quite, you know, shut up and dribble, wasn't it? You know, shut up. Let's watch the players dance for you. And and that's the end of it. What, What was fascinating about this letter that he sent to all the 32 federations at the World Cup is that he actually didn't he didn't specify any of the issues right it was all just hinted at so all of these issues whether it's uh the treatment of migrant workers whether it's uh lgbt rights in qatar the safety of visitors to qatar women's rights in qatar whether it's iranian drones uh, bombing the hell out of ukraine whether it's uh women's rights protests in, in iran as well all of that stuff went unmentioned, but it's all kind of read between the lines. The thing I would say is, if if we're keeping football out of politics, or politics out of football, I should say, what why was why were Russia kicked out of the World Cup? Right. Like, if if that's the position, then surely Russia should be at the World Cup. And, and it's a really interesting thing because one of the thing, one of the things that you, the Ukrainian FA have been calling for in the last few weeks is saying. Iran should not go to the World Cup because they've been supporting the Russian um, attacks on Ukraine. And, and that's, that's a fascinating argument because it is actually the logical outcome, right? If FIFA's position is that Russia, as a result of, of being aggressive uh, towards a, sovereign, towards a se- separate sovereign state, should not be competing at the World Cup, and it's also the subject of sanctions from around the world in the same way as Iran is, then why is it different for Iran to Russia? You know, I'm not sure if my personal position is that, you know, if you're supplying weapons and your weapons are being used, I don't know, because that maybe leaves countries like my own in a vulnerable position, right, when it comes to World Cups and the United States and things like that and Saudi Arabia and all of this sort of stuff. Slippery slope you create when you take a decision to ban countries from sporting or cultural events. But at the same time, I don't think anyone would argue that Russia should be at the World Cup. I'm not sure I made that much sense there, but it it shows the complete riddle of contradictions that FIFA have got themselves into.
0: Yeah, I think it's a complete mess, really, because as you say, Russia are banned from the World Cup. Well, their teams are banned from all UEFA and FIFA competitions. But then Match TV, which is, I think owned as a subsidiary of the Russian government through Gazprom, has been awarded the TV rights or the exclusive TV rights for the World Cup to be broadcast in Russia. So it's like this ban only goes so far and FIFA still think that business can be made, obviously because that TV rights deal is probably quite lucrative compared to maybe banning Russia. And it's like, oh, that actually won't have that much of an impact on our own economic strategies going forward and i think that just shows the problems that fifa currently face but they very, but,
3: but but i suppose i'm quite interested in view re- views you, you as the ukrainian um on, on this podcast do you think is there any argument that for example by having countries like russia and iran at the tournament the focus on those countries would be bigger. The scrutiny might be bigger. You know, if it was now two weeks away from the World Cup, and Russia was still going to the World Cup, could you imagine like the amount of outrage, the amount of coverage? Um, I'm sure Iran will get a huge amount of coverage, particularly with the fact that they're playing against uh, the USA and England during the World Cup. I don't know you as an Ukrainian. What what would you want the situation to be for sporting the sporting arm of uh, Russia and Iran
1: I would have just uh, boycotted the whole World Cup I mean just for <laughs> the global reasons apart from Russia and Iran I mean Russia's not going there but uh, regarding the World Cup and the TV rights I think they were given to them as the previous hosts and no one wanted Russia to be previous hosts I like mean, English in particular right We well, remember the scandal but they were and everybody watched the tournament even Ukraine broadcasted it which was outrageous by by that time but Still, it was really flexible, very, very lucrative, and there you go. It happens, and it's going to happen now, but without the team, obviously. Um, so far, I'm I'm happy with the outcome. I mean, Iran should probably be out of it, but uh, I like considering all of the red tape, they wouldn't go for it. Although. As a Chilean uh, football expert or on Ukrainian football, Roberto Morales said recently that uh, Tunisia might go out, might uh, exit the World Cup because of their problems, which something that's um, like it's not in the news or, or anything. I mean, I haven't seen that as a official announcement, but they have real troubles with federation, and some team is going to replace them, which is going to be Italy by rumors, because uh, there are really. Um, strange uh, regulations from FIFA, how it's going to work out. But it's not going to be Ukraine under any circumstances. Neither is going to be any African side. So that's something to look into. I mean, that's something I recently heard. I'm not sure if it's going to pan out, but something to consider.
2: Definitely so. And this is something, Andrew, I know you probably want to reiterate that whenever any of the statements come from the Ukrainian FA, there has not been one request from the FA for Ukraine to replace any team that's removed from the World Cup it's just about pointing out the as Adam you could said there the the discrepancies between what FIFA have been applying not only throughout this year but historically as well am I right there
0: I think it's all just a bit of a mess. I know that in terms of what's going to happen with this World Cup, nothing is going to change in the next two weeks. I think that everything that is going, that like all the teams and clubs that are going, will go. We will see a lot of, uh, how do you call it, critique of everything that goes on there from the migrant workers, from the LGBT right issues. But I think... The problem is, is that it's probably too late to actually make any actual lasting change for this tournament itself. What I think that there has been a massive learning curve this probably this year has been and and the reaction to Russia, uh, how they've been banned and I think looking at, well, maybe not for Ukrainians, but for everyone else around the world and media, et cetera, how to consume the World Cup being hosted in a country that is very controversial, that has got a lot of issues. And I think that there will be, it will be a lot more less of, oh, wow, this is a celebration of football. What a tournament this was, in the words of Gary Lineker, uh, after in after the 2018 final. And more about, hey, we've got some problems here. Probably shouldn't have ever been here, but we're going to make sure that it doesn't happen again again. In the
3: future, but do do you know what? It's interesting. Every time I write about Qatar, there's always people who are, you know, people from Qatar or people from the Middle East who say, you know, well, where was all this coverage four years ago? And I think elements of that are fair. I also think, yeah, you have to remember that I think the World Cup happened about six months after the Skripal poisoning, right? In in the UK, so like there was plenty of people at the time who were saying, I, I think, for example, the royal family didn't go to Russia right like and okay people can say who cares if the royal family go whatever right but that's that's a pretty significant thing for the president of the fa um prince william not to go to the tournament um so th- you know there was there was a response where th- what there wasn't a discussion about was how can russia host a world cup four years after invading its neighbors that conversation didn't ha- did not happen in 2018 as far as i can Remember it in terms of like mainstream media, broadcasters, anything like that, and it's one of the things actually. Um, now I sound like I'm shamelessly plugging, but it's one of the things in in our podcast series that we discuss with Sergey Palkin, the Shakhtar CEO, who says, you know, all of this goes back to 2014, and the failure of whether it was the European Union, whether it was governments across the world, whether it was FIFA, whether it was UEFA, maybe even ourselves as a club to a certain extent, not making. You know, not getting that noise right in terms of Russia has invaded, annexed, occupied a neighbouring country, and somehow we're all going there and hosting the World Cup. And I think what we did, as probably as media, was we went and we met. I didn't go and talk about colleagues here. Um, People met Russian people who were lovely, right? Because people are lovely when you when you meet them. A lot of people are very nice and people start to distinguish between the people and the government. And that's what will happen in Qatar as well, because I'm going to go to Qatar and I'm going to meet Qatari people who are going to be thrilled that they've got a World Cup in their country, as they should be. Um, But you have to sort of continually be distinguishing and scrutinising the decision makers uh, compared to those who are just kind of unfortunate enough to live there, right? Um, And that's a difficult thing. I know it's more complicated with Russia because... You've got a kind of a brainwashed population, some of whom are very much in support of what's happening, right, at the moment. I'm not underplaying that um, whatsoever. But I, I do think, you know, when, when people are set, you know, there's because I know there's some people saying about the Qatar World Cup now, like, oh, all people are doing is talking about the negatives of it, there's so many positives, et cetera. And I think part of that is informed by the media feeling quite stupid for the way that it handled 2018, and feeling quite regretful and remorseful and feeling played that's the biggest thing right we were played russia played the world and got away with it and felt emboldened um and you know people don't want that to happen again
2: quite rightly so so. feel free to rant as much as you want (laughs) it's great to hear uh but we're going to take a slight side road here and go into the wonderful world of the Nipro minus one, who have been helping our coefficient quite staunchly, haven't they, Andrew?
0: Yes, they have. They also lost, sadly, in Europe last Didn't week. It helped
2: so much this <laughs> week, though. <man. laughs>
0: a bad week for coefficients yeah. in general, but uh, they qualified and they are in the playoff round and they will be facing, you've guessed it, A.K. Larnaca again. The team that they lost 5-2 on aggregate in uh, during the Europa League playoff round. They're now facing them in the Conference League playoff knockout round. And yeah, another Ukrainian side that Larnaca are facing in uh, Europe this season. They also obviously played Dynamo Kiev, beat them 1-0 away, uh, drew three all at home. Can Pro 1 finally knock these Sibriats out? <laughs> They're playing really well in the league too. I think that has a massive impact. Obviously, through all the circumstances with the war, it's given, maybe it's opened a bit of a door to other sides to compete for the title. <laughs> Dnipro Kiev okay, certainly haven't been taking that. One club that have is Deep Pro 1. And once again, they got a big comprehensive 3-1 win uh, this weekend against Minai. And they're top of the league. Uh, They're playing really well. And I think they've got a few more games until the end of uh, the winter break. And the sort of all systems go, really. They can fully focus on the league. They're not going to have the distractions now until at least February of those matches. And we'll see what happens. There are rumours coming out of our friend Bakaru Banza that Dnipro One has requested to to play this game uh, against them in two weeks' time uh, in Kosice, where Dnipro One are based in Slovakia, because there is special dispensation for teams playing in Europe to play games between each other abroad. However, However, I think the reality is that they probably won't be played. Be playing that game in Koshitsa. It's probably going to be in Ushkhod or Lviv because I don't think Shakhtar will be accepting that bid because they're very much along the line or towing the line at least of Volodymyr Zelensky and everyone else that matches should be played in Ukraine. It shouldn't be played anywhere else, especially a few weeks ago with the Classico. There was that issue where Dynamo Kiev requested it to be played somewhere else because of, you know, when the Kiev bomb attacks were happening. And it was really heightened sense of, I guess, uncertainty, the air raid sirens and everything else that was going on. I don't think that we should read too much about that. Yes, the Pro 1 might be putting that in because it's probably going to be more favourable to themselves. But if you don't get a mutual agreement, then I don't think it can happen. On top of that, I think just coming back to Shakhtar, uh, we've spoken a lot about I think preparations for this next round. Uh, obviously, the conference playoff and of and the Europa playoff. Shakhtar in the winter are rumored to be playing uh, a America tour or a US tour. Uh, They'll be playing against three, four sides currently in talks with, I think, DC United into Miami. Um, One other side that I've forgotten about right now, but in general, that is the hope that they can sort of carry on this charity tour that they obviously have done uh, in the spring of this year, continue it on another continent this time around. There's loads of Ukrainian diaspora in America loads of people that listen to this podcast loads of people that you know follow my page on twitter as well that uh, that love ukrainian football but obviously don't have the access to see these matches live uh, because they live on the other side of the world but they should have the opportunity hopefully if it comes through uh, and is all confirmed i'm hearing there might be a few sort of logistical issues and all that kind of stuff right now that i think shakto are trying to iron out but hopefully once that is sort of completed and this is official news um, sooner rather than later, it will be a big success for raising awareness, of course, but also um, getting getting a bit of money together from the charity initiative as well, because I think everyone, everyone loves a bit of football. It's going to be the close season in the MLS as well. So everyone's going to be sort of preparing for that um, spring and looking forward to it.
2: Yeah, definitely so. Definitely so. Uh, just a quick roundup of the coefficient before we move on. Uh, it's our sort of time of play now, going into the winter break. Ukraine sits in sixteenth in the table, but uh, it's very sort of tightly packed there between thirteenth and seventeenth in in the table at the moment. Uh, Czech Republic have lost all their teams and won't have any teams taking part in uh, spring football, which should give us a bit of benefit. With it being so tight, I think one or two victories in that playoff round for either Shakhtar or Dnipro will see us climb above the Czechs and back into the top 15. That We do always go on about the top 15. And for the next cycle, uh, 15th place will have five teams in Europe, whereas 16th place will have four teams in Europe for that cycle. So it, it is important for Ukrainian football that as, a, as a, a nation, we are in the top 15 at the end of this season. So for all of the controversy surrounding the Nipro Minus One, we do appreciate their uh, contributions this season, especially as Dinamo with... Even they even lost their battle to be the top team in the in the group this week, didn't they, Andrew?
0: Yeah, uh, less said about this game, the better. Lost to moving on, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, after the game, Lucescu, still in his job, said now we can fully focus on the league, we've got less travel to do, uh, so we will look forward to, I guess positive uptake and shooting up the table from Dynamo Kiev in the UPL.
2: Obviously, we spoke about Will, and uh, I'm more interested in the Ukraine under-21 friendlies coming up in a couple of weeks, if I'm perfectly honest. So can we spend a bit of time talking about that squad? Really exciting to see the two boys from the SPL getting their call-ups. Kuchiriyari for the first time, really good to see. It. Excited for this, Andrew. The under-21s are looking really positive for the future.
0: So I think one thing, an important caveat of all of this. There's two friendlies that Ukraine under 21s will be playing in November. Uh I think one's on the 19th and one's on the 21st. Both will be in Tbilisi in Georgia. One match will be against Georgia and another is against Israel. And the issue with these games and the timing of these fixtures is that the UPL is still on and that is actually a match day weekend in the upl so this ukraine under 21 team as far as i am aware and now i'm looking at it with the call-ups that i'm seeing um that rotan is sort of progressively making uaf have not officially announced uh, a squad yet I think it might even be announced by the time people are listening, maybe not. But what I've seen so far is cl- individual clubs have been announcing that their players have been getting call-ups. So our good friend Max Kucheriavi from St. Johnston has got his debut under-21 call-up. He's not been playing too much for St. Johnston this season, but I think it's very much high time that he got a chance. And obviously with the likes of... For example, the whole Shakta squad, who probably all qualify for, for the under-21 side, who probably will be playing for a against Deep Roll one on the 19th of that weekend. Then we're going to be seeing the likes of Kuchuryave get time. Uh Yehor Yarmuluk, who's usually a bit of a sub uh, for the under-21s, might get some starting time. Wants a caveat that he's been in on the bench for Brentford, Brentford seniors. Over the past two Premier League match days, he hasn't made it his full debut yet, but he's on the bench. And I think that's already a positive because a lot of people are expecting him to be at Brentford B. No one really knew what was going to happen with him, but he is getting those chances. or He must be impressing to make, be making the bench at the very least. And with EFL Cup action this week, I've got a high feeling that he is going to make that senior debut uh, against Gillingham. Of all teams, so if he doesn't make a debut against them, then uh, I'll eat my hat. Uh, on top of that, go back going back to the SPFL, Mikola Kuharevich, He's also, I think, not been officially called up to the under twenty ones yet, but as he's been in uh, Rotten's squad over the past few times, I think he will be as well. What a season he's having! I think he's at about nine ten starts in a row for Hibernian. Scored three games in a row for them and that's his best ever season return uh, for any senior club he's played for in his career. Obviously, he's still young, but that that already just says a lot about the kind of form that he's in. And it's good to see Hibbs not getting the best of results from time to time, but he's still getting goals. I think he's getting a lot of offside goals. Hopefully he can fix that up in the coming weeks as well. But I think it's all positive. And I've even seen uh I think a lot of the Schechter players that are playing abroad now. I think there's a few that's like playing in the lower divisions of Spain, some in Germany. They might be getting their chances in this uh Rotten squad. So a lot of players that maybe we might not get the usual chance to get focus on now will be getting the opportunity to you know stand out. And obviously, we've got the Euros next summer. So this is a chance to cement or either try and stick your foot in the door into that squad that before next summer's campaign.
2: I tell you, it's great to see so many Ukrainians making a name across Europe. We've, I think when we started this podcast, how many did we have in Britain? Yamalenko... Zinchenko, and I think that was it wasn't it back then. Now rumors of another one coming in the summer seem to be very strong. What have we've been hearing about Malinovsky moving to Spurs. Um well I think what we know is you know, Spurs
3: when you look at that central midfield it's a position they need players. Um I I can't say I've seen enough of Malinovsky to know whether like you know he's the answer to to that midfield issue um I think they probably need someone who is very, very creative in that midfield position. They've got players like Hojberg and Bentoncourt kind of destroyers. Do do you guys think Malinowski is that kind of... They almost need like a, a new Christian Eriksen in that position. Do you think that's what he can be or he's a bit more kind of industrious?
0: No, I think that's exactly the kind of player that Malinowski is. Under Gasparini, I think there's been a lot of problems for him over... I don't know, maybe the past two years. He's been playing really well for Atalanta. But as far as I'm aware, not a regular, regular Serie watcher, but from people and Ukrainian experts that do watch it a lot and watch Malinovsky closely, say that he's always being played out of position. So he's slightly always played towards the right. He cuts in a bit and scores all these wonder goals that you see clips of um, on Twitter, etc. But he's never really been afforded the time in his more favoured position of central midfielder that slightly can play more advanced, you know, that playmaker role. What,
3: what, 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 I, what I do remember, I was at the um, Scotland-Ukraine game, the, the, the World Cup playoff game earlier this year, and he and Zinchenko played in central midfield together. And both of them on the night, I presume a lot of this was kind of the emotion of the war and sort of raised performances to a certain level, but the, both of them were sensational. In midfield that night. Like honestly, I mean, this is Zinchenko in particular. It was like one of the best midfield performances I've seen live. I I would go as far as to say. And Malinovsky wasn't far off behind him as well. Um that night. So yeah, I mean, clearly very talented.
2: It's funny you mentioned Zinchenko there. I mean, <laughs> I've I've I must apologize. One of these where I put my hands up and in the summer when he went to Arsenal. We had questions about the move and why would he give up a spot at Man City unless he was going to play central midfield? Because we all know central midfield is where he excels. And after that performance against Scotland, it was really hopeful. And my God, hasn't he really settled in? It's great to see him back this weekend for Arsenal at left back again. Solid performance there. They really look like they're putting something special together. And Sinchenko looks like he's such a key part of the, the team already. Am I, am I seeing things, Andrew? Or do you agree with me there?
0: No, another solid performance from him. Looks like he's not been away at all, really. Yeah, a few kind of shaky moments, but on the whole, he's playing that Cancelo role. Quite well, that I think Arteta's essentially brought him in for that position where he tucks in a bit when Arsenal are going forward and he's essentially playing that Ukraine central midfield role when needed. And then once they're broken again, he slots back into left back. If, if he wins the league with Arsenal, I think it'll be one of the greatest transfers of all time to move to leave City and somehow win the league <laughs> at Arsenal. That'll be, you know, it'll be genius from, from his perspective and his representatives as well. And obviously, I think it while it won't solely be down to him, he will have played a big part in that um in that role, despite the fact that he's missed the past few months with injury. But I think it's a good thing that the World Cup's coming up. He's got a good month to get back into training get ready for the upcoming season and get going
2: i
3: i thought i thought he'd get exposed at arsenal i i because i thought playing left back at man city kind of got away with it because of how much the ball they have how dominant they are and he's really surprised me and so because i get much like much like yourself i thought he was going to play midfield when he went there be part of like a midfield three or something like that um so he's really impressed me defensively. Um, we, you know, we know he can pass the ball. We know he's good going forward. But yeah, and, and he's really, when you look at that spirit that Arsenal have developed this season, I think he's been a big part of that um, with his personality and his character. I, I think it's been an amazing move for him. I, I, I really didn't think, I didn't think he was as good as what he's shown in the last until the last six months.
2: Really is great to see. You know, when players make these spurts and take their game to the next level, like we're seeing with Zinchenko. But like, what a great, great place to bring sort of the pod to an end today. But before we go, of course, Adam, uh, first episode has gone live by the time this pod's come out. But for people listening who want to know where to find it, uh where what best places for them and what's going to be the release schedule for, for the episodes and the like when they come out?
3: Yeah, so first three episodes are out uh Monday, the 7th of November. Um, so that's already out as as we speak. Um, and then the final three episodes will be out the following um Monday, 14th of November. Um hopefully by the time the second one's come out you're wanting to be binging the, the rest of them when they come along in terms of where you can find them really straightforward wherever you get your podcasts um so apple spotify apparently there's other place at google podcasts i don't know wherever you get your podcasts it'll be there or if you're a subscriber to the athletic it's uh, on the app itself you'll get it um as well completely ad free uh, though i think i don't actually think there's any adverts on them anyway so there you go
2: and if you'll indulge me, yeah. any plans for any kind of follow-ups with this in the pipeline?
3: Follow-ups? It's been the last fucking two, two and a half months of my life. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm j- joking. Um, I think, <laughs> I think uh, you know, depending what the draw is um, in, the champ- in the Champions League, Europa League, um, let's see. Um, I think, um, de- I mean, look, definitely... You know, we're not going anywhere in terms of continuing to cover the situation in Ukraine. Um, That's obviously a massive priority. I remember, I'll just give you sort of one anecdote. I remember when the war started and we did a piece about sort of the players that had escaped and did some work with Shakhtar at the time. And um, there's an amazing guy called Yuri Sviridov, who's the communications officer at Shakhtar. And he sent me a message at the time saying, please don't stop writing about us until the war is over. Um, and he, you know, they and he basically said it's a fucking nightmare here, please don't ever sort of forget about us, don't just sort of do one piece and then disappear. Um, so that's kind of a promise that we made him at the time, it's a promise that we'll stick to. Um, and as much as we can do, uh, you know, to shine a light and continue to cover it where it's you know relevant and interesting, then we'll continue to do so.
2: Yeah, I think. From us here, we may not be as large as Shakhtar, but we do want to thank you as well for it. It's great to see our, you know, our passion of Ukrainian football being brought to, you know, an audience as as large as yours. It's it's, it's really great to see the Shakhtar story being shared. Uh, And yeah, Yuri, he is a great guy. He really Mm -hmm. is. A lot of time for him. And our chance for a little plug plug before we go as well, Andrew. Uh, Our work with Glory magazine, which has been a real privilege to be involved with as well. The magazine is now available for purchase online at the Glory website. It's a fantastic publication with endless uh, stories, uh, anecdotes, beautiful imagery from across Ukraine as well. If you haven't purchased one yet, you really are missing out. It's it's a wonderful purchase just from a football lover's point of view. And you have the added bonus of the money that you are spending will go towards humanitarian support for Ukraine as well. So if you haven't done it already, make sure you go out and do it. Now, Andrew, great episode today. Now that Europe's finished, what are you going to be up to over the next few weeks?
0: For the time being, I'm staying in london however i am hoping to be back in ukraine for dnipro one Shakta, or wherever it is going to be played kossetshire uh uh, wembley who knows but i'll be at that game and hopefully taking in a bit more upl action before uh before the season comes to a pause in mid-december
2: look forward to it Ray mate it's been a great episode as well what are you going to be up to over the next few weeks
1: if you can share Mm -hmm. sure it's mid-season where I am so um nothing much happening um I'm will be tuning into the World Cup gonna watch it at 7 a.m 9 a.m 1 p.m something I never experienced in my life and hoping for a good tournament, honestly, Um, besides all uh, controversy and um, filth, let's say. Uh, And then uh, we're moving on to transfer windows and I hope we'll be in touch about Ukrainian football movements. Uh, It's certainly going to be an interesting few
2: weeks ahead with lots and lots going on in the beautiful game. But till next time, everybody, Take care, stay safe, goodbye for now.